You're listening to a ComicsXF podcast. WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the ComicsXF interview podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dracula Grove. And I'm Matt Laserwolf. And this week's <laughs> guests just launched Dracula Volume 1, The Impaler, on Kickstarter. Matt Wagner and Kelly Jones. Welcome. Hi, fellas. Thanks for having hey. us. Glad to be here. Great to have you. Uh, so first, first up, how did you guys connect? Uh, you're, I mean, you're both been in the industry for decades. Uh, is this the first time working together? We actually did one uh, Grendel short story together for uh, one of the various, either black, white, and red or red, white, and black. I forget which one. Uh, but we first met uh, many moons ago when uh, uh, Kelly drew the lion's share of, and I contributed one chapter to Neil Gaiman's Season of Mists, uh, seminal Sandman story arc. And uh, we were tossed together at various uh, store signings during uh, the promotional end of that thing and uh, we just immediately connected you know we have a mutual love of horror and we have a kind of common sense of humor and just just became friends ever since phone yeah. phone buddies for the most part but yeah. uh you know uh, uh i it was in detroit a convention in detroit oh shit yeah i forgot about that yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. where we met it was 92 and uh not long after we did a show in houston and uh, we sat together at that one. And um, I was thinking of that. Uh, we were at Comics Experience in San Francisco. With and Neil. we did that uh, one as well. Yeah. Um, it was in Houston because we really connected in Detroit. And then in Houston, you said, come on, come on, come on. Let's take a break. And you went and showed me where all the really good uh, bootleg and underground videos were of all kinds of awful, wonderful stuff. And I cool. went, <laughs> and all of the things you were pointing out was all the stuff that aligned with my taste and i went okay, okay. <laughs> this is great it was meant to be it was uh get it, so, so this was off. everybody's first time seeing faces of death then <laughs> <laughs> stuff off the british nasties list <laughs> what, what 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 did i point you to i can't remember that that you clearly. pointed me there was a uh, a bunch of like bootleg concert stuff and then there was a bunch of these um like obscure kind of independent horror films and stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, you couldn't get, then you couldn't get it. Now you can probably get everything, but then you couldn't. And there right. was this great, uh, I don't want to say something weird video, but it was somebody like that. And um, that's where you said, come on, come over here. And we went through it. And I, I don't know, I came back with a giant bag. <laughs> of, of stuff which i had to lug around until i got home but it was all good i still have all i still have them all <laughs> so uh as you said you're here to talk about uh the, your new kickstarter uh, your first volume of dracula the, uh, the impaler so first why dracula well uh okay let me just preface that by saying that you know uh, uh over the course of our our long friendship together you know we always you know, I brought him on board just for a, a short story on Grendel, but uh, we always kept saying to each other, oh, man, we got to do something together. And and by that, we meant something like significant, not not an eight page short story, not a one off um, and something that would mean something significant to both of us. And we're such giant horror fans. And uh, about a year and a half ago now, maybe two years, uh, Kelly commented on something I had posted on Facebook with that same old rejoinder of. Yeah, we really got to do something together someday. Yeah. And I 
private messaged him and said, are you serious? Cause I actually have an idea now. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had been brewing on this idea of telling the backstory of Dracula for many, many years. And uh, you know, anybody that's, that's a fan of the original novel knows what a, a compelling and magnetic presence Dracula is in the book. He's not in the book very much. He's yeah. off stage for a lot of the book. Uh, but there's enough in there that it, all these very, very uh, um, intriguing hints as to his history and his persona. And uh, uh, I just thought there's there's many stories there that we can do, you know. Um, and so uh, Kelly said, yeah, Kelly, you can take it from there. Kelly, so what do you got in mind? <laughs> yeah, it, it was. Um, Matt had posted a piece of art. Somebody had complained that it was explicit. I said it wasn't explicit enough. We started <laughs> talking. Uh, we started talking. And then I was saying uh, just in general that uh, kind of what we, we've we never done something together and we should and then be as explicit and more so as you were being, they were complaining with Matt. And Matt says, do you mean that? Because we've been talking about this a long time. If you mean it, I'm going to, we've got something to talk about. And I said, Absolutely. And uh, he says, OK, I'm going to put some of my notes together, refresh my memory, and I'm going to come to you with this because it's been bubbling in my head for a while. But I'm just going to tell you up front, it's Dracula. And right there, I was interested. Uh, right there, I knew he's going to come Jesus, with... how could you not be? Yeah, <laughs> because Dracula has been a part of my life since I was six or seven. So yep. cool. And uh, when he got a hold of me, he just started telling me this story. He says, let me just listen to this and tell me what you think at the end give me your ideas or whatever and he st he started to tell me basically the entire outline of the of the first story then saying how it would lead to book two book three book four what really made it click because it was all wonderful is he says and they will all stand alone but if you read them together it's math it's an epic and i went that that's all everything i needed i love self-contained I love stories within stories and I love everything together makes a huge, uh, a huge epic. And, and, and the big key to our approach here is I'm trying to stay extremely faithful to the novel, which of course every fucking film version says, and none of them really do it. Yeah. And uh, the key though, is we are not retelling the novel. This is not yet another telling of the novel in comics form. There's already a ton of those. Uh, this is all the stories in and around the shadows of the novel. Um, the the stuff that is hinted at that isn't shown. Um, uh, and I thought, well, that's that's our way into this character and into this story. And it provides a, a vast canvas for us to paint all sorts of, you know, bloody, sexy, cool stuff. Well, what Matt did that was great. It's a, it's a philosophy I've always felt works uh in film or in books or whatever he comes up he came up when i when he was telling me several tremendous scenes i mean very very powerful scenes each one leads into the other so you get this uh pacing each one separate unto itself each each one of them compelling each one of them you could probably expand into something but he gets in he tells it he goes that part add to the next component that component adds to the it, it was a wonderful uh experience just reading the plot and i kept thinking to myself while i was reading it i know no one's seen this before 
I know it because I've read everything Dracula. I've read uh, the fiction, the reality, all this stuff. I know these things happened. He's not inventing something. He's expanding upon this stuff. He's he's explaining where this lore comes from. And, I'm I'm and yes, and and what happens is you begin and and it was done in such a way where it doesn't hinge upon it. It's the result of. That's that's what got me going. Was was it was new. It was it was something that was familiar, and I had never done it. I had never seen it, and it had such a deep characterization to where you could understand this. It's not just a guy who's evil. It, it, evil doesn't enter his mind. He would never consider himself evil, um, which makes it even more frightening. And so when you have horror based just on the premise, and then those moments come up that create terror it's it makes you unnerved with this character i mean when reading the the this the plot i was like going i don't know what's going to happen next and if i don't know what's going to happen next i've got to assume people who are into this don't know what's going to happen next you know it's always been my approach to these kind of stories specifically horror stories i always find the horror horror stories are not about the scares sure they can be but you don't really think about those afterwards you know um the horror stories you linger on, the horror stories you reflect upon are the stories that are actually about something else and 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 delve into your human fears in a way that unveils uncertainties that you have about life and about yourself. Um, for instance, I was just talking with somebody about uh, I'm a big fan of Mike Flanagan, uh, who uh, has been doing so many great uh, cinematic things uh, recently with uh, uh, Netflix uh, I just loved his series Midnight Mile or Midnight Mass, excuse me, Midnight Mile, Midnight Mass. And, you know, that wasn't really about scares. That was a, that was a story about addiction and about faith and about the loss of faith. Um, you know, uh, that's a vampire tale. So similarly, another vampire tale, probably one of my favorite vampire movies of all time is Let the Right One In. And Let the Right One In is a story about uh, isolation and loneliness. And it's about the loneliness of being a bullied 12 year old boy or a 200-year-old vampire that can never grow up. And this is the approach I take to these things. Uh, I'm always looking for the human element before the scares. The scares come later. The scares will come on their own. Um, and I try and make them count when they do come. But, uh, but it always has to be something that is going to resonate deep in the reader, the viewer's uh, uh, consciousness, you know, and, and make them reflect upon how that reflects them and their own experiences yeah he says that there's a hell of a lot of scares in this <laughs> okay that sounded all great and i'm like oh yeah good structure it's easy great. just to this lay on great. the, the this icing was the, uh, when oh, you have a delicious that. cake you can have lots of icing <laughs> <laughs> you've talked a little about uh, about the novel and you know, dracula starts out there and there are plenty of vampires in fiction and Dracula is not the first. I mean, Carmilla, Varney, Paul Dory's the vampire. They all predate Stoker. What is it, in your opinion, makes Dracula the king of all the vampires? Well, uh, he's he's uh, kind of the first supervillain. Um, you know, if you look at uh, Polidori, uh, uh, Lord Ruthven. First of all, those ones you mentioned there, uh, Carmilla, Lord Lord Ruthven from the the vamp Polidori's vampire. 
and Varney. Um, those are the first instances where we have uh, stories of vampires that are aristocratic. Previously to that, there have been vampire lore and revenant lore okay. stretching back to the beginning of time, the Egyptians. But it's always just this reanimated corpse, this ghoul, more than a more than a uh, uh, a cognizant vampire, you know. So those stories you just mentioned right there were the first instances of a vampire with cognizance, with elegance, with uh, a sense of humanity to them still. And uh, the difference is uh, Dracula's got a big evil scheme. You know, he's he's trying to uh, uh, take his powers and his influence and and uh, lay siege to an unsuspecting kingdom. You know, whereas Lord Ruthven's just being a, a dickhead aristocrat. You know, Carmilla's just trying to like find the next woman to fall in love with, and you know, and and Varney's just like blood, more blood. And uh, uh, Dracula is much different than that. His aims are uh, much more sophisticated. So that's that's what makes him much more. Uh, uh, um, significant to me you know i mean of all those uh uh dracula is one of the few i think there's maybe 10 or 12 books if i remember my research correctly that have continually been in print since they were first published and dracula is one of those um so even though he's not on stage very much like i said he's often in the shadows it's just a testament to how powerful and magnetic his presence is i compare it all the time to hannibal lecter in silence of the lambs stole that fucking movie he's on screen maybe 16 minutes you know yeah. so uh so dracula is the same has that sense of magnetism that sense of menace you know that sense of charm you know you you want to you want to you can't tear your eyes off lecter when he's on screen the same is true of dracula and yet you know you get too close and they're dangerous as balls you know it's something uh alan moore said about league of extraordinary gentlemen that he'd never include Holmes or Dracula because the minute Holmes or Dracula are there, the story stops being about all those other characters. Right, they're both they're both too big. They're both too enormous. Yeah, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. So, aside from the novel, what other influences are you both bringing into this comic stew? Well, okay, I'll start story wise. Of course, you know I have to uh, include. Uh, uh the inspiration of the actual historical dracula uh vlad the third of uh war warlord uh voivode was the actual term in romanian of uh of valachia uh 15th century warlord who was known for his uh his ambition his power hungry approach to life his uh insane cruelty and his favorite method of executing his political enemies uh which was by impalement which earned him the romanian term sepesh which means the impaler which lends the uh the subtitle to our first book um so you know trying to incorporate a bit of that but then uh then also uh approaching it with as i said hints from stoker's novel most particularly in our first book is the fact that van helsing talks about dracula's history and the fact that he supposedly attended something called the Scolomance, which is a Romanian legend about a seminary for the dark arts way up in the mountains next to uh, Lake Hermannstadt, which is a fictional lake, by the way, it doesn't actually exist. But uh, it's a uh, it's a school for the dark arts that Satan hosts once every seven years. Satan himself is the host. And this is mentioned twice in the book. And I'm just kind of fascinated by the fact that nobody's ever done dick all with that fact. That's that's really intriguing. That's a great, that's a great springboard for a story. So we did it. <laughs> we took it and ran with it. Yeah, I um, think I think what's great is that 
with Impaler, there's none of the things that you know yet. It's all of the all of what leads us uh, leads him to to what we all know now. So these drops and these bits and these pieces that Matt's discussing, um, they get fleshed out and they become, to me, fascinating. The the whole uh, seminary for evil. I remember reading the book and I just blasted by that because he never did anything more with it. He just said yeah, it's just it's just a comment. Yeah, right. And and so I didn't really understand it all that that's where it started. Because there's nothing in there where he's bit or he does such great evil, he's cursed or nothing like that. It's he goes to do something. That's not his goal when he goes there. That's not any of, of his purpose is to become that. His purpose was to gain great supernatural, supernatural power. power because he does not have the the, the force to withstand uh the, the, Turkish the Turkish invaders. Arms. Yeah, yeah he the, doesn't the, have the Ottoman it. Empire invaders. He can't trust his own. Uh, he can't trust his own um, uh, aristocratic level people. They, they may or may not follow him. So he's left to his own devices, and that gave I thought uh, gave Matt a great motivation. That you know, in, in the novel, in its defense, I mean, the novel doesn't have the space to explore this, and, and it's not the focus of the novel. The novel is contemporary to what's going on in Victorian England at the time, and uh, you know, it's it's just thrown in there as a bit of uh, a bit of uh, sublime texture. Well, know, like Mary Shelley's look, he started evil, you know, it's, started it's, at the Seminary of the Dark Arts, hosted by fucking Satan, you know. Yeah, it's Mary Shelley. I don't really describe how the monsters made. He's made. They did some mm -hmm. stuff and they poured things and it's the same thing here. And he's a vampire. And then it goes from there and it's hundreds of years later. Why it, why a trilogy? Why did you decide to break it up in this way or, instead of tetralogy? A, a tetralogy. Excuse, ah, yeah. A tetralogy well, versus one. I mean, I assume it just for sheer logic it's it's just it's just too enormous of a story otherwise uh uh you know i mean we're looking at um you know by the time it's all said and done 500 pages or so you know and yeah we could do that but that would take us five or six years to get done before we'd ever unveil it it was hard I enough know. sitting on the the fact we were working on this thing just through the first volume without telling yeah. anybody yeah um but more distinctly i you know i i love structure and i love uh, uh movements and stories uh codas as you were as you would um but I found what I thought were four different points on where we could tell extra stories based upon the structure that the novel lays down and what it leaves unsaid. And only one will be about the novel or will be involved with the novel. The other three are not. One kind of runs concurrent with the novel. Yeah, yeah. the other ones don't. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it will be and it will be, I think. Very fresh because it's going to be him, you know, it's going to be what he was doing. He didn't sit around and, and just menace uh the protagonist and dracula he's off doing all kinds of stuff i always love the fact there's 50 boxes spread around london yeah, yeah. we only know about the one <laughs> you know have either of you seen uh the the most recent dracula film the uh the voyage of the demeter oh yeah okay one of the things i loved about that because again you know he brings these 50 boxes of his native earth to london and in every other depiction it's coffin sized it's coffin sized 
And in this, each box, each crate is about the size of six coffins. I mean, he's bringing a fuck ton of earth to London. <laughs> that was one of my favorite bits of that movie. Yeah. Yeah. It was not a it was an odd year for Dracula movies between Demeter and Renfield. Just like... Yeah, I haven't seen Renfield yet. Um, mainly because I... I want to stay on the scary side of things and, yeah. and keep that in my the forefront of my mind, you know. Um, I, I'm sure after we're a little further along in the process here, I'll go back and revisit Renfield. Well, and I think, too, that because what Matt has written is so different, that it's kind of good for us to stay in our own different world for a while. And um, uh, we're we're into now a lot of undiscovered country where it's it is not the same old ground and um, the the it's uh, so that way I don't have a fear we're taking the same ground. Um, it there's so many things that when I was reading it, uh, and I can't even go on to where I'm at now, but I'm like going it, it, the same things happen. Like oh that makes sense. Why would this happen? Um, uh, and what are the ramifications of that? Um, it's, it's almost like, uh, it's, it's, it's like a Mozart thing. He keeps layering and adding and layering and adding until you have this huge thing and it's wonderful, but it works when it's just sing singular. And that's, and that's the thing that, that I found I really like. I mean, I love old vampire films. I love Langella's Dracula, Lee's Dracula, Lugosi's Dracula. I love them. I love Count Yorga. I love Blackula. I love all those. And they all would take some slice here or there and do something. Um, I always loved Hammer films in that at the end of every Lee picture, it was a different way to kill him. That was in that was the you could do. But uh, Matt and I were talking how much we love just the shadow of a cross, eh, you know. And we're th and we're thinking, um, you know. Uh, how how that all influenced us to come up and still be separate and unique from that um that that uh he's the king of his kind so a lot of things aren't going to bother him you know um the lesser ones it would uh the the weaker ones it would uh dracula's great skill his great advantage isn't he's the this just physically powerful his intellect is he's a great strategist um he's had to hold power he's had to fight wars uh he's had to deal with irritating wives it's all these things and survived it all and that's what matt did was he made yeah, un un unlike lord ruffin in in vampire he's not just an indolent aristocrat he yeah. he he was a warlord he was a leader he he you know he he has goals he he wants to conquer um you know, uh, uh, the first page of our book talks about uh, how history is written by the bold, the victorious. Those are who are ravenous for power, no matter the cost. And he says, I I have uh, a craving I have manifested for centuries and I am such hunger incarnate. Yeah. And that's in every panel with him. That's always there, this eagerness. And it it's it creates a great deal of suspense i'll be honest with you in just uh telling that story you never know what he's going to do next you never know and when he does something awful he has a completely rational explanation for it that's horrifying 
well, it's just matter of fact. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Like, and he doesn't do cackle when he does it. It's like, you don't you understand? I love that. Don't you understand? It doesn't uh, matter if you do understand. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. He's going to do it know. anyway. <laughs> So why did you guys bring this to Kickstarter? Had you tried uh, shopping around to, to traditional publishers? You know, first? from the very earliest stages, we talked about Kickstarter. And part of that is the fact that neither of us had attempted this before. We felt like for our first uh, huge, significant thing, we we just felt like we wanted to stretch our wings in this regard. You know, um, you know, I've kind of been at the forefront of the indie comics movement since its inception, you know. And Kelly's made an entire career, you know, drawing exactly the way he wants, regardless of what the popular style at the time was, you know. So we both have had the spirit of independence forever. And this just seemed like, all right, let's try this. I wanted to only answer to Matt. I didn't want to answer to an editor, a publisher, anyone else, just just Matt. Um, and and that was that's the way it should work anyway. When you're when you're doing something like this, uh, I wanted uh, that amount of freedom and it doesn't mean to be excessive but it means to be truthful yeah you know if you look at my career in working with the larger companies you know i've only ever done stuff where i enjoy that sort of freedom that kelly's expressing there you know i've only ever worked with editors who know oh just leave him the fuck alone don't don't mess with him just you hired him for him to be him not for him to be a company yeah. version of him you know yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Karen Berger, Bob Schreck, well, Matt, that's, Goodman, that, you know? I think that's the reason your work and I'll and I'll hope my work still stands after yeah, yep. years is that you could come to uncompromising. A, yeah, it, it, it still speaks. It still speaks from an original place and not of a prevailing wind. Uh, I think I think whenever I read Matt's stuff, it could come out right now. Could have been 30 years ago or now. 40 years ago or now it it would still work yeah kelly describes my stuff as literary pulp which literary I pulp. A, great, a great badge of honor you always <laughs> you always feel like you come away with some new knowledge while you've seen everything that makes all the all the gory shit you want all to the see. drive-in <laughs> movies i ever went to yes well you know i've always had this approach that uh uh drama needs to be visceral and uh and drama is about change you know and people have said to me occasionally you know how come there's so much sex and violence in your work and i was like well because drama is about change and sex and violence are in, in narrative are the agents of change you know they, they, they are what signify change of course sex can lead to new life and violence leads to death you know mm -hmm. so these these are the things that drive the changes that roll throughout uh, any form of great narrative any form of great drama you know shakespeare fucking knew it yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and and i oh. think what happens with the challenges is how do you do it to make it interesting artistic or whatever and not just purient and well you uh, do it because you 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 recognize and you remember you always remember that it's about people yeah that it's about your characters are real people. They are not just, uh, 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 they are not just props. Well, you and, know, and even I the most think... minor character, you know, has some sense of significance. You know, that character goes home to somebody at night. That character was raised by somebody. That character will suffer when they die. 
And even if you only get to see them for a brief period of time, you know, as a writer or as a creator, you need to remember that constantly as you're portraying. Well, and I think I think what Matt does that so many can't do is he's like going, hey, look, this isn't my point of view. I, I This is just what's happening. This is what went down. I'm showing you what happened. It's not what I'm try not trying to tell you something. I'm not trying to teach you anything. I'm not trying to change your man. Just can you look at this and see what happens? And that's his that that's the thrust of his storytelling. I've always loved. There's not this. I don't. I don't see Matt there going. I see Matt going. I look, look at this. <laughs> and that and that that is a skill. It, it's a great skill. Um, there's nothing in there that that speaks of anything other than a truth in his story that's it and that is hard to do he he i i have to admire that because that's the goal i always try to do in my work it's just this is just as as unconventionally as i may go about it i want people to stop and linger over things and sometimes it's violence sex and violence and so a lot of times it isn't it's it's a setup to things. it's the quiet moments too yeah, yeah it's a setup to it so when it happens it, it's very affecting it's but, the point you're going for those moments that people will remember yeah and those could be quiet moments those could be uh non-verbal moments well there's totally but different they could tropes. also be loud horrible moments yeah know? there's different tropes in horror than superhero and and horror is a much or has a greater range, I would say. Yeah, superhero. it's much more seductive to me. It's mm -hmm. much more. It's 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 uh, something where it it I relish its ambiguousness until it reaches a point where it's bang, there it is, and then everything comes into focus. Uh, so that way, yeah. it, it 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 keeps at least if you're reading it, it it draws you into a new world. And it's Kel. It's funny you say use that uh, term seductive. So in uh, in Stephen King's uh, analysis of horror, Dance Macabre, which he pu published many years ago, yeah. uh, he broke most horror down into three big archetypes um, with a, a fourth subsect. And this is a little simplistic, but it eh, fits for general purposes. Which was Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman. So you have the beast within, you have the unknown, unnamed thing, and you have the seductive power that will consume you and of those and then he also includes the ghost as a separate uh, uh subset uh but of those three dracula was always my favorite i always i was like the seductive thing that would consume me call me crazy i always loved <laughs> i've always and it wasn't until uh we were thinking about it here this past week or so i always loved and and it's uh something i would have loved to see matt do something with uh lugosi in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein because he's kind of a mad scientist in that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, he's kind of Doctor Frankenstein and Dracula. Yeah, and I yeah. and I love the idea. Matt could really handle like a mm -hmm. 30s or 40s Dracula doing pulp evil science stuff. Mm -hmm. And oh yeah, he's a vampire, but he's doing all this with uh, with, uh, I, with a, a, a test tubes and a. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, I I uh, watched it, and then all of a sudden, it's it's how your wheels turn. I'm thinking, ah, oh, that would be yeah, a serious version of <laughs> Frankenstein, <laughs> really serious. I mean, Dracula moving brains around—that's just wonderful. That's that's awesome. Yeah. So, how did you assemble the rest of your team for this book? Uh, okay, so I'll go first here. Uh, so our, the rest of our team is uh, Jose Villarubia on uh, colors and uh, Rob Lee on uh, lettering. Uh, and uh, I'll let Kelly handle 
Rob because Kelly brought Rob onto the team and I kind of nailed us, uh, Jose, you know, um, both Kelly and I were looking for, uh, something that would exemplify a slightly more old school approach to comic coloring, you know, uh, not all these damn airbrush effects and, you know, that kind of stuff just leaves me cold. You know, we, we wanted somebody that would understand the aesthetic of the stuff that when we grew up, the stuff we were reading, you know, the, even though eerie and creepy were in black and white, that sort of thing, uh, heavy metal, uh, tomb of Dracula, you know, the Marvel line of, uh, of, uh, horror comics, uh, werewolf by night, the monster of Frankenstein, etc. And, oh my God, Jose brought that in spades. Uh, specifically, I, I have always been super disappointed in how most people color Kelly's art because Kelly's art is so dramatic and so uh, full of atmosphere and everybody colorists approach it going like, oh, he's dark and moody. I'm going to color him dark and moody. And I'm always like, no, he's already done that. He's already done that in his line work and his his remarkable inks and, and the, the amount of shadow and, and uh, uh, atmosphere he manages to get in the black line. You don't need to add more to that. You need something vibrant to accentuate the menace in those shadows, you know? So specifically, we pointed Jose to uh, 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 two cinematic examples, uh, Dario Agento's work, uh, specifically uh, Suspiria, and then uh, Mario Bava, uh, and specifically uh, Black Sabbath, his uh, his anthology uh, starring uh, uh, Boris Karloff, both of which are almost neon lit and they're so scary you know and uh and boy kelly uh, uh not kelly sorry <laughs> jose just brought it in spades and he brought enough of his own uh old school approach to this because of course he's just recently finished doing a restoration of wrightson's original swamp thing for dc and he also did uh, a lot of restoration work on um uh richard corbin's uh, library that dark horse has just been publishing so we were pretty confident he was going to give us what we needed and holy shit did he so yeah, yeah I, but, then, I, uh, but then kelly brought rob on board Go yeah ahead. and uh, well to just finish on jose all you you're right he he allowed black to be a color indeed indeed and, yeah. and so i had the only he said to me is there any direction you want and matt had pretty much told him that i said well just think in terms of the old uh four color printing Mm -hmm. and and just keep the palette limited and bright and then work within that um when it came to rob coming along i'd worked on a couple of jobs with rob and and i tend to overdraw in panels <laughs> and way overdraw and i i but that's just because i'm enjoying the drawing i know it's making my day longer or maybe but <laughs> but i enjoy doing it and i want to see it come come and i'm very big in composition so I don't just compose a piece here or there. Every panel, I try to make it a pleasing composition. Um, Every page too, man. You're, yeah, you're, I do. You're, you're I, going to choose your spots on the page, like what, right. what you're supposed to look at first. Yep. And mm -hmm. I told Matt that, or I told uh, Rob, I should say, I always start. I said, Rob, uh, once we got to know each other, I said, Rob, I always start with the last panel first because that's the one you turn to go to the next page. So I always start with some crescendo there or something really in interesting. And he liked that because he said, okay, that's going to help affect how I place things. Um, he also did a great job of, of, of placing the balloons 
where even if he's covering something, it doesn't cover the essential part of the art. He's good at um, choosing. Yeah. Yes. And he's very, very good at that. He's also incredibly gifted at coming up with all different kinds of fonts or styles, whatever you kind of need. Um, and that alone is such uh, a relief that you don't have to show an example. You don't have to go in the long explanation. Matt will just say uh, whatever his description is of what's going on and you get it. Um, it's it's probably because in all of us, we uh, all of the people involved in Dracula all come from this time where we grew up on 70s and, eight, and early 80s. I, I always draw thinking, well, what if I had to compete and it was 1968 to 1978, that period of art, that period of, of creators, it's all over the map. I mean, you knew, you knew creators without reading their signatures. You just yep. knew who they were. Yep. Yep. And, and you knew um, that they were bringing it every time. And so that's who I look at. And not only that, they were, they were, they were making an enormous amount of work. They didn't spend a year to do 22 pages in a year. You got 300 pages and that, that's what in my head i'm always trying to think that way i think that kind of work creates a lot of a lot of energy for the project the reverse from spending days and days and days on three panels on a page it's much better to sit down and say let that energy come down and just do it and say by four o'clock i have to be done yeah and then, you, and then you, for me i'll focus on the composition first when that happens that's what i'm doing so rob kept that clear oh and rob kept that very clear he yeah he moves your eye around the page so let, let me add to that about rob um one of the unique things about the original stoker novel the bram stoker novel is it is uh what's known as epistolary style which means that it's all written and it's an early example of this too it's all written in the form of uh journals and uh you know th there have been many first person narrative novels by that point but this is a multi first person narrative where there are many journals many points of view so there's Jonathan Harker's journal there's Mina Mina Murray later Harker's journal there's Dr Seward's journal uh there are newspaper reports uh everything is there except Dracula's voice so our approach is that all four of our books are narrated by the man himself, by Dracula. So we get the inside scoop on what this motherfucker has been doing over the centuries. Yeah. And Rob really brought that to his approach to the captioning. He he made it seem like a journal entry, made it seem like a tattered, centuries-worn journal entry, and he made it seem like somebody that was writing, that learned how to write in the 15th century. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, he really, he really brought it in every regard. And like Kelly said, he he knew how to Kel let Kelly's art shine and not cover up all the great shit that Kelly puts in there. Kelly says he overdraws. Yeah, we'll take it. Yeah, I, do. <laughs> I do. So, Matt, you're just as well known as an artist as a writer. And a lot of your best-known works, Grendel, Devil by the Deed, The Mage Trilogy... Dark, uh, Batman Dark Moon Rising, despite what some online lists of quote-unquote forgotten Batman stories <laughs> might say. Um, uh, when you conceive a story, do you conceive it as a one-man shop story versus a work-with-another-artist story? Or well, it, it depends. It's apples and oranges, you know. Uh, some stuff, yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm a one-man story, yeah. 
but not in this case. This is a case, uh, you know, I, I specifically with somebody a like Kelly that a I've known for so long and a and B has such a, uh, an indelible and, uh, uh, remarkable style that is so ingrained in the, the, the public consciousness of the comics community, you know? And so I know what Kelly is. I know what he brings to the table and, I'm not kidding you guys, man. Every step of the way here, I was writing to, I was writing like, oh, fuck. Kelly's going to just draw the hell out of this. This is going to be, oh, this is such a Kelly scene. This is good. And then he turned in these pencils and they were so much better than I was ever imagining, you know? So it was just so gratifying, you know? Um, uh, yeah, I always try to write towards the artist I'm working with. And, uh, and in this case, you know, there's a familiarity there, not uh, just... You know, Jesus Christ, we've talked and talked and talked in this interview about how Kelly and I have known each other for years. It When we actually started working together on this, that we knew would be a multi-year project that would be five to six years of our lives, it felt like we'd already been working together decades. Yeah. It felt so comfortable and so smooth and so like, damn, Jesus, why didn't we do this before? But okay, no. we're going to take it as it is and we're going to appreciate no. the things we have going for us. The first but five it minutes. felt so smooth. Yeah, the first five minutes of the first page, it had felt like I'd worked with him for years. It, it was weird. And I remember thinking, well, will this last? And around six or seven pages in, I remember telling my wife, I, I said, uh, this is like effortless. I'm not, you know, the work is the work. It's just effortless in seeing it. And that is because Matt's an excellent artist. So he's, he's thinking uh, visually anyway. And he's probably thinking... Yeah, I'm not going to write 700 guys chase 700 guys in panel two. And then we go to panel three and there's 400 guys killed. And <laughs> he doesn't do that. Um, what he does is he keeps it right on target. And uh, but that doesn't necessarily means it's easier because he's everything is is sometimes with Matt, the look in their eye, the turn of their head. There's a lot of stuff there where, where it's, it's exacting. Yes. So so um but but I find that that when you work with someone like that, you trust them. You just trust them. If they say, tweak this, do that, yeah, no problem. Because Kelly, Kelly told me a funny story that his wife said to him one day, oh, you must be working on Dracula today. He said, why? Because you're such a good mood. Yeah, I'm not fighting it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to fix something or go, why? Or this, why? This, you know? uh, it just, it's just, I, I walk in there. In fact, she knew that because I would be, um, uh, I, I normally don't talk to her about my work either, you know, because uh, she's a civilian in, in that sense. And so, I do. Uh, so when, when I do talk about it, I go, I know you're not going to understand this, but you got to look at this here. Just, just look at this or, or I'd have her read part of it. And that's what I was doing with Matt was, was I would show her uh, three or four pages, but I'd have her read the, the, the script at the same time. And cause she, cause she's literate, uh, literature major. So she knew Dracula inside out and backwards as well. Um, and it, it was one of those things. And when she said to me, uh, I know, I know you're happy with the clinger quote, but I, I heard it a couple of years ago. Like this guy knows Dracula. He knows his <laughs> this is right on because she's ready to pounce, you know. And then she goes, "No, that's good. That's right on," you know. 
and so she became very interested in this. She's been more excited than we are, I think, over this coming out. Because <laughs> is it ready or is it going to? When's it going to come out? You know, um, and that's that's kind of cool because I've seen her go from, uh, you know, kind of just sitting on the sidelines, and you know, that's what my husband does to actively interested in a project. You guys, uh, he mentioned quote unquote the clinger quote. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's a fellow named Leslie Klinger uh, who is, who has written a bunch of uh, beautiful annotated versions of uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, Frankenstein, and Dracula. Yeah. He's considered one of the world's preeminent Dracula scholars. Yeah. And when we first started announcing this uh, about a week and a half ago in the lead up to the launch, um, uh, all of a sudden on Twitter, I got a message from Leslie Klinger saying, oh, this is so exciting, and I would love to uh, help consult on this book. So so I contacted him, and uh, I said, man, we would we would love to be able to send you this and see what you think. And, you know, of course, we're sitting there with our assholes clinched, like, oh, I hope it passes muster. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, oh, my God, we got the most glowing quote out of him that we're going to use on the, uh, you can see it on the Kickstarter page when it launches. And, oh, it, it was, I had to call, it was late at night, I had to call Kelly. Kelly, we just got this quote from Leslie Klinger. <laughs> yeah, he well, because I knew who he was. I had his books. And when Matt mentioned his name, I knew who he was. And then I thought, oh, man, Matt's got to go to the principal's office. Yeah. And here, I'm just the artist. I'm fine. If I get it wrong, I'll just say Matt told me to do it. Yeah, and I came um, out non-spanked. Yeah. <laughs> so Always a it plus. Was, it was it was nice because there's no way to change it now, Matt, with a die as cat. Yeah, yeah, it is what it is. Yep. <laughs> now, Kelly, you have done another seminal Dracula comic with Batman Dracula Red Rain. Yeah. How are you approaching Dracula differently this time? Well, in in that, he, it's still the focus is Batman and Dracula is a monolithic evil. He's not uh he, he's by that point quite ins, you know insane from his 500 years and that whole thing so it was always described to me as um gotham is a is a place of great corruption and it draws dracula to it and it's gotham's punishment basically as dracula comes so it wasn't you know we're we're in dracula's mind and dracula has an objective it's basically uh, corrupting all and and bringing Gotham down into this disease. He's almost Lovecraftian in that. Yeah, very much so. And so it, it it's Batman has to to deal with the fact that uh, he doesn't believe in the supernatural, and now he's forced to. Um, and that was that. With what I'm doing here, this is a flesh and blood guy, and his character. Even if Matt never wrote him at all, and it was like. You know, we're just going to do a historical Vlad thing. It would work because the character's so believable and he's so frightening. I mean, genuinely frightening man, not because he cackles and he doesn't say, I'm going to get you. He never does that. Just how he operates. And so you see that uh, still be the core and the principal thing about him. It's not that he needs blood. It's not that he's been cursed. It's not that he has to live by night and do all the things vampires do. It's that he's this guy now 
Andy it's, has this. It's that he needs to dominate. Right. And and it doesn't stop. And that became fascinating because you see how he gets there and it isn't like he gets worse. He's already worse. And and so you you just it isn't like uh Yeah, anything. I, I... I'd say it's funny you should say that, Kel, because I'd say, you know, now that I think of it, because I'm, I'm an enormous fan of The Sopranos and yeah, and, and the whole thought that, you know, uh, uh, Tony Soprano's uh, uh, term with uh, Dr. Melfi only served to make him a better Tony Soprano. And Tony and and Tony only sees himself as a soldier. He's not killing people. He's a soldier yeah. in a war. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. Matt. Matt made me think of him while drawing it because i'm going he doesn't see it that way Mm -hmm. he just doesn't see it that way that becomes fascinating because every page you do not know what he's going to do you just don't and when he does it it shot i will say to you there will be moments you're shocked in this because i was when i read and went what the and i was thinking how did matt do this why oh matt no not this guy not this girl no what you know, it's like but it's wonderful and um because it's it again it's a sincere telling of a character there's nothing to say i'm going to make you like him nothing and you'll at oh, time, yeah, I'm not I'm not trying to make you like him. No, but you're going to like him anyway, regardless. Yeah, and you will. And I do. And you do. And then I'd get to a point and I go, oh, Lord, you know, you'd stay away from this guy with everything you had. But you you are mesmerized and want to follow, which is the character in and of himself in Stoker's novel. And Matt, we got that is that you you are mesmerized. Yeah, there's by the character. there's a point in Stoker's novel where. Jonathan Harker realizes I should get the fuck out of here. Yes. <laughs> and yet he just can't. His his British politeness won't let him. And yet at the same time, you know, he's also this guy's kind of interesting, you know, yeah. in certain regards. Or he's, well, he tells us great stories. At least, you know. Yeah. Uh, those where Dracula tells him great tales until yep. the sun rises. Yeah. Um, and I love the fact that Dracula loves to tell stories. He loves to hear stories. Yeah. There's yep. little facets to him that are, that are interesting because that's what we do. We like to hear them and we like to see them. We, um, we incorporate that at a later, a later yeah. date. Yes. Enough, yes. enough said. Yeah, enough said. <laughs> um, but it, it makes him an interesting guy. Uh, and it makes the people around him, uh, you know, want to follow him too or be interested in him as well or serve him uh even they even though they know uh i mean you gotta think in in his day and he, he's seen as a great patriot you know still is in a lot yeah, of Romanian, and still uh, is uh, a great patriot so this is a funny I've thing heard, i have actually gotten emails from people from romania oh. after hearing yes i was going to tell you about this matt oh. Telling me how much they're looking forward to this and wanting to know if if I ever wanted to come over and have a trip, they would take me to the Borgo Pass. Fucking hell, to, dude. Do it. All these things. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, and but it's because they uh had seen where Matt was treating him with great respect. And that and they and that's where I thought, yeah, they they still see him with great respect. In my uh in my, you know, I'm just absorbing 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 everything dracula i possibly can and uh, i stumbled upon this i think 2018 film and it's a turkish film called vlad the impaler and it portrays vlad as the enemy of the of the turkish empire well, he was 
Well, of he course he was, but this was this like horrific terrorist kind of cunt, you know. Twenty twenty thousand, <laughs> and there's even this, there's even this crew of like Turkish warriors who are almost like the Justice League, who yeah. each have like a special battle power, and they kind of assemble <laughs> to go fight Drac, to go fight Vlad. You know, it's a really cool interpretation. Of the you list. know, give him, give him his due. Twenty thousand impaled turkish soldiers they still remember it 500 years later yep yep you know (laughs) that would be something to come across as you're coming in to invade and i can't imagine five guys much less one guy much less twenty thousand guys yeah Um, in our first volume we have a panel where uh vlad says okay now let me go he's just kind of got up and the battle's approaching and he says let me go wander the forest I have planted to uh, uh, yeah. uh, welcome our, our invaders. Yeah. And it's, it's this, you know, just a bunch of impaled people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he had, I mean, worse, it would be worse to be a traitor to him than an enemy. And that, and Matt gets that across, you know, an enemy is an enemy, but a traitor. Uh and that's and that's that's something that only someone who feels born to rule would feel that strongly and so you get that all the way through with him uh this is a guy who is the prince and it just so happens this happens to him i'm happy in the fact that we get a lot of uh vlad's backstory in there um kind of around the edges you know it's not we, we don't focus on that we don't have any flashbacks uh we start at a certain point that leads to him attending the scholomance with satan and the rest of it is we learn about him as we go yeah and, and i like that it doesn't depend on you being in knowing you don't you don't wait for something you become interested in this and this is what happened to me i became interested in it not waiting for something it was happening so i'm I'm engaged in this thing thinking everyone's this this has got to happen to anyone else who reads it because I'm not sitting here going, well, when's he going to do this or when's that going to happen? Or there was none of that. It was like yet yet at the same time, you know, you you'll and, and Kev will back this up. You know, there's there's plenty of instances in the first book specifically because, of course, of course, the first book is a, an origin story. It's how he becomes a vampire. And it's all set in the 15th century. You know, so we are not in Victorian London. We are not in. Uh, uh, the castle in Romania when Jonathan Harker comes to visit. We're we're in a different time frame, and yet there's a ton of stuff that will feel familiar. That yeah. will feel like, oh, that's the Dracula I know. Oh, and he's Dracula. Dracula. The Dracula I know that he becomes. Oh, he's Dracula from the very first moment. That I I went, wow, he's here. And then I was saying, how do we get to where I know we have eventually where we all know, and we will, we yep. will. <laughs> uh, and it's a great journey it is absolutely just and on a, on on that basic point every i keep saying there's so many good scenes knitted together that's what always makes a great story to me um i think stanley kubrick said that he, he would sit down and write five or six great scenes and then say well how do i make it all stick together mm-hmm. and um because a film needs that i think a comic book it's it's identical there are so many great moments, so many great sequences, so many great things that are memorable that um, I always want to work on books that people want to revisit. And this is this is one of them. I think that's right. Yeah. 
Matt, do you see a line sort of from Dracula to Grendel as these suave villains with, you know, they, these, you know, rules of sorts that they follow? Fuck right, I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, that stuff appeals to me, you know. I mean, uh, you know, it, when you look at it, when you look at how I'm approaching Dracula here, well, I already have a lot of experience of painting this unrepentant villain that's the basis of a uh, century-spanning epic, you know? I, on one level, this is very familiar territory for me. But, uh, but of course, Dracula paints his own his own version. Grendel's his own version. You know, it's not all exactly the same. But they do, uh, they do have all of an aristocratic arrogance, and uh, they do all... Uh, like to run around in the dark dressed in dark clothes and <laughs> well and villains are more interesting Vi- villains yeah, are always yeah. the more interesting i always drew batman as as a villain to the people he was encountering they, they yeah you know he I, was the I, villain. I pointed out recently you know that dracula and batman don't have much motivations in common and yet they are both isolated aristocrats yeah <laughs> living living in a crumbling castle yeah, uh, sneaking around in the dark and dark clothes. So <laughs> there's yeah. definitely a there's definitely an overlay there, you know. Yeah. Well, I always saw it. I always felt it. So, um, with circling to a little bit of other upcoming work, uh, Matt, the master's edition of Devil by the Deed, the story of Hunter Rose, the first Grendel, is due out next month. Mm-hmm. Why was now the time to go back and revisit, complete, however you want to say it, that story? Well, I'll be very upfront and say that it was originally conceived uh, to be supported by the Netflix TV show, which met a very tragic end at the end of some at the uh, at the hands of some shithead executives. Uh, yet at the same time, you know when it. We, I had reached the 40th anniversary of Grendel. And when I went back and looked at it, I thought, you know, I need I need something to, if the show's going to bring in more viewers and more buyers, I need something that's not the omnibus editions, which are 600 pages each. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the original story arc, the Hunter Rose storyline. And even though I had expanded that drastically in the Black, White, and Red, Red, White, and Black series and Behold the Devil, um, the original one was only 37 pages long because it was originally uh, uh, serialized in the back pages of Mage. And I drew it when I was 24 years old. So I approached Dark Horse and said, look, the 40th anniversary is here. Let me cap this off by going back to the beginning and retelling this. Uh, we'll expand it to 121 pages. And I'm drawing it now at age 60, 60 plus, you know, with all the years of experience and all the greater graphic skills and narrative skills that have come my way since uh, I first fumbled my way into that story. And, uh, and I gotta say, I'm super, super fucking happy with it. It it looks, it looks aces. And, uh, and uh, my uh, long time and uh, beloved colorist, uh, Brennan Wagner, my son colored it, but I, I rendered it all in, uh, in line and ink wash and some, black colored pencil and even a little bit of airbrush here and there. And then Brennan took that and ran with it in the uh, black, white, and red palette that has since in the many years succeeding since become uh, Hunter Rose's uh, uh, milieu. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I couldn't be happier with how that thing looks. 
you mentioned Brennan. You know, what what do you like about passing on the craft of of comics to the next generation uh, in house, basically, so to speak? Well, uh, you know, I don't. I never tried to. You know, I, he grew up in my studio, and I never tried to push him into comics. You know, and there were ports of his parts of his younger life where he thought he was going to try this and try that, like photography and maybe filmmaking, et cetera. And he just kind of naturally gravitated back to comics on his own. Um, and now he's stretching his wings and trying some other stuff. He has a new book out right now that he's done in coordination with a, uh, you know, we live in Portland, Oregon, and he's done this in coordination with a uh, Portland uh, sportswear company called Portland gear. He used to share a studio with the guy that came up with the, uh, the brand and, uh, and it's a Portland based superhero. And, uh, and it's it's I gotta say it's terrific. I really enjoyed the reading the first issue. It's uh, it's invigorating. It's about a do-gooder, not a crime fighter. And uh, and what's really neat about it is somehow he and his co-collaborator Dan Scotty, who I worked with uh, on uh, the Spirit relaunch, Will Eisner's the Spirit relaunch that I did uh, for the 75th anniversary a series for uh, Dynamite called uh, The Spirit Returns. Um, they have extremely successfully managed to make portland made the city the star of the story so even though you have these two main characters a male and a woman they're intriguing of their own but you get to the end you're like oh this this is not about them this story is about the city that that's a that's not an easy thing to pull off and they really pulled it off really very 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 well so i would be loath to not ask uh Kelly, you've done a lot of Batman over the years. Do you have a favorite story of your own that you've done, a favorite Batman story? Uh, one that I've done myself? Yes. Oh, God. That's tough. Um, I, I I would say rather than, because uh, I've been on some stories I've really enjoyed, a lot of it is sequences that I'll think of, like uh, uh-huh. sequences. That's normally what I think of. Um, and there'll be uh, some that are very, very, you know, uh, the the noiry horror film Batman I love to do. And then there's others that are just bonkers bat shit that I enjoy that are uh, there was one in a in a series Gotham After Midnight where Batman has this giant robot to fight a giant clay face. And I just, you know, it was so absurd when I read it in the script and it it just worked and, and I can't to this day i'm I'm wondering how that worked but i just loved it i mean it's it was bizarre and it seemed like only in a batman story or a gotham story could you do it and it's serious but um no i i uh i have a lot of these moments where I, a lot of what i used to love to do with batman was come up with something to uh kind of stop the reader and say what is this point of view or what is this angle or what is you know because i wanted it to be uh his view of the city or and then it color the drawing in in other ways um so it's tough i mean that's a tough one i can uh i would have people you know i think i'd answer that and someone would say but what about this and i go oh yeah that one too um <laughs> but i did it for so long that it just became um like i i always used to tell denny o'neill uh because he he asked me once uh he liked what i was doing and he kept saying go do more uh keep going further because i would say are you sure denny are you really really sure and he says no i wouldn't have hired you otherwise um which is great for an editor to say but one time he asked me where does this come from you know where is this coming from 
And I said, well, I'm acting like I invented him. I'm not acting like other people did it or whatever. And I would go back and, and look at like the forties stuff. I really liked, uh, uh, I mean, um, I had a friend of mine introduce me to the golden age stuff. I hadn't really seen it. And then I became just mesmerized by the early years. And, uh, so that became kind of my angle was, uh, I wanted, um, I wanted it to not make sense. You know, uh, hook and ladder phone next to a computer was completely logical. Uh, steam trains uh, and and uh, Concord jets all goes together um, because Gotham. So I, I enjoyed putting windmills in Gotham because it was a Dutch city originally. Right. So there should be some old windmills, anything to make it different. <laughs> um, and and that kind of stuff is is. You know, uh, I've always kind of done that when I'm going to be on a character for a while uh, is like, well, act a few in Venom and maybe something new will happen, you know, and you get lucky. Sometimes you get lucky. I got lucky with that. Uh, next month, Graffiti Designs is releasing an oversized gallery edition of some of your Batman work. Was that something putting that book together that you were directly involved with? Yeah, they um Yeah, I bet. Yeah, they, they got a hold of me and said, Do you have any extra stuff? And I said, Yeah, there's a lot of little things here and there. Initially it was to have some decorative art and they couldn't use it. So I'd completely forgotten about it. And um when they got a hold of me to say that that this is what they wanted to do, they said, Do you have anything? And I said, Yeah, I forgot about it. So on I found it. It was like, like, wow, that if I only had this, this would be enough. So I, you know, they told me, send it. Well, let's take a look. And then came right back and said, yeah, we'll use it. And I said, uh, okay, it's big. I don't know how, where you'll put it, but um, I told them where it was initially intended to be, but it wasn't necessary now. And then a lot of these little watercolor things I'd done for myself to kind of figure out how to explain to the colorist and explain to myself and the editor um, so there's a lot of extras to it. Uh, but frankly, I was surprised. I, it, it's one of my favorite jobs. I just didn't, you know, it's 15, 16 years ago. And Batman's a kind of a different character than he was then. Uh, mine is the single-minded driven guy. No romance in his life. Uh, just, you know, bashing heads. And that's the, the way I like him. So it's it's funny. Before we had uh, booked you two, we were going to do a whole Halloween special on uh, werewolves. So I'm just going to yeah. throw this in, in Fuck there. Fuck werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? You know what? Uh, I think the use of wolves in our thing is good. And uh, I like that, you know, uh, there's room. There's room. And, and I say that facetiously. I, I love yeah. werewolf shit. Uh, yeah. uh, the Howling is probably one of my favorite films of all time. Horror yeah, there's a, there was a great period. Uh, I think it was 79. You got Salem's Lot, Dracula, Nosferatu. Uh, just good, good, uh, good vampire stuff. And then a couple of years later, you get The Howling. You get American Werewolf. There, uh, there's just good werewolf. It's a good period for werewolves where they were kind of redefined and updated but kept their, their history. And I, I'm um, going to be a little apostate here and say, I, I far prefer the transformation sequences in howling to, to American werewolf. Oh, I, I'll, I'll agree. I think the werewolves are far more frightening in the howling. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah. He's, but then again, when, when when David's transforming, it's almost comedic. Yeah. You know, but that's that's in tenor with the rest of the I, film. But. I think it is, and I think they play with a lot of. They make fun of the tropes in it. You know, the when the when the little uh, people in the pub all get quiet. You know, yeah, and yeah, th- yeah. that there's all the things. No, there's there's great moments in that. Yeah. I, I love most of that film, but yeah. I just don't dig it as much as I do the Howling. Well, the Howling, yeah, the Howling is a true, true horror film. In, in and I will point out a, a terrific uh, werewolf novel to people. It's called The Last Werewolf by Glenn Duncan. Um, he he actually ended up doing three uh, uh, three novels in that same sequence, but the the first one, great standalone werewolf book, great one just terrific yeah yeah um yeah i think i think uh you're right that is a great series uh there's also one that uh uh leslie witten i think and he wrote a book called moon of the wolf oh i don't know that one uh it's he was a guy he worked for jack anderson of all people the uh reporter and he wrote actually wrote two uh two great stories um you would never think this guy would write horror uh he, he was did investigative journalism you know political journalism so um that's just real horror yeah yeah and and so he uh uh you know like i said he did one called progeny of the adder which oh yeah i know that book yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that was absolutely lifted to be Shack. Mm-hmm. And then Moon of the Wolf, which takes place in, uh, I believe, Louisiana. And it's mm. absolutely terrific. Both of them are. Mm. And mm. it's it's probably one of my, there's also, um, Jack Vance wrote a great vampire short novella too. And I can't, the name escapes me right now. But those two always stuck in my, in my mind. I got a little friend who came to visit us here. Yes. Yeah, Matt, who are we looking at here? Yeah. Oh, this is Boo. I know Boober. I know. I know. <laughs> well, Boo, Boo wants to ha- put his two cents in here too. It's she, but yeah, she, she comes. Yeah. Now, now, how long was she out, off camera before you? Uh, br- oh, she just came in the studio here just a few seconds ago. I had to lock all mine up, or they would be all over jumping on things. Yeah, Kelly was telling me he walks his cats. Yeah, I walk my cats. He my walks cats. his cats. He walks to the neighborhood, and the cats follow him along. Yeah, they do. They <laughs> they are absolutely indoor cats, and a couple of them they'll like to go outside, but only for like twenty or thirty minutes. And they have to. Ha- if you don't go, they won't go. They so I have chaperone. to them. Yeah, I have to walk them. <laughs> I've, I've you guys uh, heard read the Wolf Sour? Uh, Robert McCammon. I, yeah, uh, I I love Robert McCammon. Me too. He's amazing. Yeah, he's um, quite good. If anybody's never read his uh, Matthew Corbett series, do you know that? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, for your listeners that don't know it, it's a it's a series. That's probably seven or eight books long now. It, it starts in pre-revolutionary colonial America. And it's basically a a a colonial. James Bond, teenage James Bond, Sherlock Holmes. I mean, it's oh. it's phenomenal. It's well, a, and it's I a... also like uh, Strieber's Wolfen, the book. I thought. That oh was... yeah, I like that. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, I like his. He's, he's a nut job, but yeah. he is a nut job. But but it's a culture. It's a subculture thing. I'm always into subcultures. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. And uh, I like this this uh, this whole group living right along with us. Um, 
I dig that because where I live is kind of a it's a rural area, but it it's it's uh, not not entirely too rural, but it it is rural. And occasionally you get a, a cougar comes along because they they travel along the uh, these we have these really deep ravines and creeks, and I'm not I'm right near a river, so they're following what they're hunt deer and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, we, we, i've never had a cougar we get tons of fucking coyotes man yeah, Just, coyotes yeah. live around here um recently eagles you have to you have to watch out for them um i've found chickens in pieces in my backyard you know that they've caught for whatever you know but that's part of living out here in in the kind of the uh little bit of, <laughs> a little bit of nature Matt lives where there's Bigfoot, so I'm okay. I don't have Bigfoot to worry about. <laughs> Dude, I just, uh, I'll recommend here a, a terrific uh, – uh, I, I know you guys want to wrap this up, but we're just yattering on. No, um, all good, all uh, good. I can go all night. <laughs> uh, uh, Kel, have you read uh, Devolution by Max Brooks, who wrote uh, yeah. World War Z? Yes, yes. That's if excellent. you guys haven't read this, it's uh, you know Max Brooks, son of uh, Mel Brooks, who wrote World War Z. Uh, <laughs> This book called Devolution. It's a it's a Bigfoot story, and it's awesome. It's yeah. terrific. Yeah, it takes place in the Pacific Northwest here, where I live, under the uh, shadows of Mount Rainier, which is up in uh, Seattle, and it, it's it's great. Yeah, you live in volcano country. Yeah, yeah we do. Yeah. yeah. So, a uh, penultimate question: uh, What are y'all reading right now? Comics, prose, whatever. Okay, go map. I was just, uh, again, my son just did this, uh, has this new book, and I was just at a comic book uh, store for his uh, signing, and I picked up this terrific uh, new big fancy edition of uh, Jim Starlin's Warlock nice. that was uh, just a beautiful recreation of that stuff. Um, yeah. It made me realize what a personal story that was for Starlin. Um Yes. You know, it's post war. It's post Vietnam. He was in Vietnam, and it was very much anti-establishment. It was anti-government, anti-religion, in in very strict and uncompromising terms. Um, beautiful, uh, uh, very, very detailed. I don't know how the fuck he got that stuff done at that stage, but um, beautiful, beautiful art. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Book wise. Uh, I'll point everybody to a book I just read called uh, Double or Nothing by a woman named uh, Kim Sherwood. It's a uh, Fleming Estate uh, approved uh, uh, sequel that takes place in the uh, 007 universe. Uh, mm -hmm. It's contemporary and basically a female 00 agent has to step up to the plate because uh, James Bond has gone missing and he might be compromised or dead or captive. And... Uh, there were a lot of wokeisms in it that initially kind of like made me made me say, eh, that's a little too deliberate in the face of everything Fleming was about. But at the same time, by the end of the book, I was like, God damn, this woman can write a great James Bond story. Cause it was, it met, it met all the tropes that James Bond needed to have a giant villains and lots of, nail biting tension and violence and just fucking awesome good yep. stuff the good yep. stuff yeah i've been uh actually reading uh one is a uh female author by the name of elizabeth walter 
And she had a series of short stories uh, in a collection. One of the collections was um, The Sin Eater. And they're fabulous. There's one called The Spider in there that's just remarkable. And, um, but she's- well, look her up. I don't know. Yeah, her. she's terrific horror story. She writes great horror stories, but they're from a very uh, feminine point of view. Mm-hmm. And they're uncompromising. They're they're really really rough, um, and she wrote in the sixties, but, oh. but they have a great depth to them, and I and I I find that that's quite good. And another one, um, uh, I'm I'm ashamed that I hadn't started reading him until the, recently is Hugh Walpole, who had a great collection called All Souls Night, um, and I thought it was. Uh, absolutely magnificent he he typically didn't write horror so he did these are just a collection of his horror stories they are horror stories and uh wrote them in the 20s and they seem like they could come out now um but he's a fabulous pro stylist too i mean uh exceptionally gifted at getting into who people are again like we were saying earlier and so when stuff happens it's it is remarkable yeah it's all those, the are the two, those are the two i've been digging right now well kelly matt this has been a fantastic time final question as we release you back into the world uh how can people follow you online and keep up with dracula uh, volume one the impaler well they can sign on to kickstarter and search out for uh it's not volume one it's listed as book one so dracula book one the impaler um Launch is coming very, very soon. Very, 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 very. Add a few more varies to that. Yes, uh, <laughs> but uh, you'll get to see everything we're offering, and uh, and again, there's going to be a variety of uh, uh, preview pages coming out on various uh, comic book uh, news websites, and uh, you can find both Kelly and I on uh, on Facebook and Twitter. Kelly's also on Instagram. You know, if you just search for both of us, it's very easy to find. We're there. Yep. We're there. Right on. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank uh, you. It was a lot of fun. Good fun talk. Yeah. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast, along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash ComicsXF, where a dollar donation gets you a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $2 donation gets you early access to WMQ&A and a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $3 donation gets you a sticker, early access, and a shout-out. A $5 donation gets you access to our monthly bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $25 donation lets you request a primer, one of our custom reading guides for a series, character, or creator at ComicsXF, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Lisa Slack, Will Redman, Tobias Carroll, Natalie Jordan, Mike Sagawa, Will Nevin, Liz Large, Asimov Fangirl, Carla Pacheco, and Robert Secundus. You're all special, and we love you. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. You can also follow ComicsXF on Facebook, Instagram, and Blue Sky. And until next week, remember, 
Rob Liefeld's greatest contribution to comics isn't Deadpool or Youngblood or even Major X. It's his impression of Todd McFarlane. W-N-Q-A.